it. Welcome to Strata Stories. My name is Thomas Schreiber, and I'm the director of marketing here at Strata. Strata is a single EMR platform and revenue cycle management service for physical, occupational, and speech therapy practices that helps you achieve a 99.99% reimbursement rate. On today's episode, Paul Singh, the CEO of Strata, talks with Sturdy McKee. Sturdy owned a clinic for almost 20 years and is now the owner of Sturdy Coaching. He provides business coaching for leaders of purpose-driven and values-driven organizations. Paul and Sturdy talk through the seven most important metrics all clinics should track, how to use metrics as leading indicators and feedback loops, how many hours a week you should spend in the captain's seat, why you should look at your business like a soap note, and the importance of managing people and process instead of managing metrics. If you'd like to learn more about Strata and see how our EMR and RCM works, head over to stratapt.com to book a demo. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. I think that KPIs don't even cross a practice owner's mind until they're already in the thick of things. Is that what your experience has been? Yeah. (laughs) So this took me a while to figure out. That's not unique to physical therapy. Okay, I mean, that's the whole reason the E-Myth was written. So if you look, Gerber comes right at it with... The entrepreneurial myth is that most entrepreneurs, most business owners are entrepreneurs. They were born that way. They learned what they need to learn, all that stuff. And he's like, that's the myth. It's not true that the reason most businesses fail is that 90 plus percent of the people who go out and start a business do it just like you just said. He calls it an entrepreneurial seizure. I equate it more to a temper tantrum, like a toddler. At least that's how I experienced it. I'm like, if I think back to when I did it, I was kind of, as you said, kind of fed up. I was like, I'm going to go do this by myself, right? I'm going to take my ball and go home. I'm tired of all of you, whatever, and I'm going to go do it, right? Now, I had an advantage in that I had done every job in a PT practice except owner, okay? So I'd done billing, I'd done front desk, I'd done aid work, I'd been a therapist. I was never an assistant. That was kind of the only one I didn't ever do, right? But even with that background, I didn't know what in the world we were doing. And that was something that nobody ever teaches and we don't get it in school. And by the way, most people don't want it in school, right? That we don't know anything about hiring. We don't know anything about marketing. We don't know anything about metrics or tracking. We literally don't know any of the business side, just like Gerber talks about, right? It's, we don't have any systems or processes. We think I do it this way. I mean, most people go out and do it, do it because they're good at the thing that they do, but that's the technical work. And one of the things that got to me that helped me a great deal was looking at that book initially, and for anybody who hasn't ever read it, I would just say get the summary, but there are three types of work, right? Well, it's a lot shorter. The book goes on and on and on. It's a story and parable and whatever, but the technical, the managerial, and the entrepreneurial work. And I use a dragon boat analogy with my clients. I'm like, you know, we put the dragon boat up. Anybody can Google that and look at it. But the technical work is the folks rowing the boat. And the managerial work, I like it. I like the dragon boat because the coxswain is up front facing backwards into the boat. And they're beating the drum. And their job is to make sure everybody has their oars, has their paddles, has their PFDs, has their equipment, is in the right place, they're synchronized, and they're all rowing the right direction, right? So that's the manager. Manager's looking inward, right? And the leader is steering the boat. They're in the back looking forward. And the thing is, you need all of those things. The other thing that I think is really, really flawed in the beginning is when you start explaining this to people, they think, oh, God, I've got to switch seats. No, 
that, you know, when you start up a business and you're one of four people, you need to be in the, in the captain's seat, the entrepreneur's seat, two to four hours a week. You don't have to be there full time. There isn't full time work for you there, right? You need to be in the manager's position a few hours a week, but not full time. There's no way you could hire a full time manager for a five person practice, right? They wouldn't have enough to do. But nobody knows those things and, and they don't know those things because they were never taught and then they don't really even know where to go look for them, right? So when we get to KPIs, KPIs are like a, a mystery box and that would actually be a really good thing to demystify a little bit because it's not known and then once it is, it's completely misunderstood, I think. And I see that from a position of I'm guilty. I think I told Thomas this before. I literally did a talk managing by the metrics at CSM the largest physical therapy conference in the world. And I look back at that and go, oh my God, you don't, like it was managing the metrics or man, it's like you don't manage the metrics. But it took a while to learn that and to figure that out. And the metrics are a result. Okay, so this is a, maybe a naive question on my part, but, and again, disclaimer, I've never been a PT, never owned a practice. I realize the irony of that given what we do here. <laughs> but, but out of curiosity, like it seems to me that when I think about let's just use it the broad term tech industry of Silicon Valley, just because that's kind of where I came from, I suppose. I don't have to look very far to get a pro forma. I can download a pro forma and, and you know, model out my business. It may not be perfect, but it's something. Does that exist in the PT world? Like, is there a resource that you know of where a prospective practice owner? Yeah, I mean, you can Google private practice pro forma and do that. But I mean, the other thing is most people starting out don't even know what a pro forma means. And I don't want people to feel bad about that either. They're experts at what they do. And running a business is different from, well, that's interesting. It's different from, and yet there's a lot of similarity in treating patients and taking care of them. But the content expertise, the anatomy, the physics, all that stuff, the mechanics, the neurology, all the rest of it that goes into it, that's completely different. But what I like is in a clinical for clinicians, and, and for some reason, a lot of therapists have a hard time translating this over, but the thought process, like a SOAP note, y'all know what a SOAP note is, subjective, objective, assessment, and plan. You can apply those that same tool, that same framework to your business. You can apply that same framework to managing people, and it's actually quite effective, right? You gather the information from them. That's your subjective. You then verify with the objective data, whatever, you know, prove, disprove, just like you do in your evaluation, you're assessing objective measures to refute or corroborate your hypothesis based off the subjective. You come up with an assessment, a diagnosis, and a plan to move forward. That is a great framework to apply over on the other side. But people would do that in a disciplined fashion with a patient. I've seen very few therapists do it in any kind of disciplined fashion with their business until they've really been coached to do it and held having somebody else go through the steps with them. I haven't seen very many of them do it on or be able to do it on their own initially because they're they get a little lost with the framework and versus their habits and the specific questions and all that kind of stuff. So we have to it takes a little to translate it over. But they have a lot of good tools. Just need to apply them in a different context. I have a lot of questions here, but I want to go in the direction that's probably most interesting to you. And I'm trying to think of how to word this without sounding horrible here. Not to you, by the way, I, I don't mean that. I mean, like, in the sense of there's things I probably take for granted that I think that other people don't. No, Paul, I think that's a really good point, though, because I live in San Francisco. My wife grew up in Cupertino. The things you're talking about are kind of part and parcel of culture in the startup and Silicon Valley world, right? It's it, There are things that are talked about. 
they're commonplace. Whereas when you go out and start a practice by yourself, and it's better now than it ever has been, right? I mean, I have a Facebook group of several hundred PT practice owners, and it's all owners, right? So they can actually talk to each other, ask questions. And, you know, there are a lot of other groups out there, by the way, where one third of them are owners and a bunch of employees and billing people and and then a bunch of hangers on too, like, you know, accountants and bookkeepers and marketing people all trying to pitch stuff from whatever. Yeah, we've culled the herd and curated the group to make sure it's practice owners so they can actually share information and talk. But that's why PTs thrive on like conferences. But in the past, that was like once or twice a year. Now you can do it on a daily basis, which is hugely powerful, a lot different from when I started my practice in in the late 90s and 2000. So there's a lot more connectivity. There's a lot more information. But now the challenge is right weeding through the information and deciding who to listen to is, is another huge one, right? So I don't want anybody to feel bad they don't know something. And I think that's kind of where you were going with the wording, right? But what, it, it's it's fine. You don't know it. Yes, exactly. How can you be responsible if you've never heard of it before? Right, exactly. You nailed it, by the way. I just didn't want to make anybody feel bad about something they should yeah. know when it, when that's not the case. But it's like, When I think about, and maybe pro forma is not the right word, but when I think about a spreadsheet model of any business, actually, let me kind of be more direct and and we'll just see how how this comes out. You know, in Silicon Valley, a long time ago, I think the industry recognized that a business plan doesn't really make sense for the majority of businesses because it's so fluid. Anything more than a page long is really just intellectual navel gazing. That's sort of generally what the thinking has become in Silicon Valley. So just to finish that thought, the result of that was really to think about, really to force founders and owners to think about the key metrics. Okay, what's your email capture rate? What do you think your churn rate's going to be? What do you think your average revenue percent? Like very basic kind of things. And now when we think about practice ownership in the position that, that we're sort of in, you know, I'll talk to new practice owners and sometimes even like existing practice owners that are like on paper pretty successful And I might ask a really, what I think is a really basic question. Like, for example, what is your no-show rate or what is your cancel rate? And an alarming number of people don't know that. That would be like me talking to a founder in the tech world that if I said, what's your churn rate? What percentage of your customers leave you? Okay, now we're going to get into industry specifics because I hate cancel no-show rates. Okay, I love it. Go, go, this is good. Because they measure a symptom and everybody does it differently. So meaning that when we tracked, we didn't consider something a cancel if we could reschedule it that week. We didn't consider the late cancel or no-show unless it happened 24 hours within a window, right? And when you talk to different people, they all have different definitions of these things. So it's a little hard to translate across until we're on the playing field. And that's something else PTs, by the way, are notorious for. They have a way of doing it, and it's the right way, and they will die on that hill. And meanwhile, there are 27 different ways to kind of get there, perhaps, or there is variety in some areas. In some areas, it's really clear. Like I I asked a guy years ago, like, what's your cost per visit? And he's like, oh, well, there's a lot of ways to calculate that. And I'm like, no, (laughs) no, there isn't. Yeah, You have all your costs, your total costs divided by your number of visits, cost per visit. Boom. That's it. Right now. Yes. Week to week, month to month, that's highly variable. So you do a three-month running average or something like that to smooth it out, right? Yep. But if you don't know your cost per visit, how do you know what contract to sign? Yeah. And meanwhile, everybody's out there signing all the contracts, even if it's $67. I won't mention anybody UHC, but 67 bucks. <laughs> and your cost is $83 to provide 
the care or 88 or whatever, and you're literally losing $21 a visit to see those people. You're subsidizing those patients. You're subsidizing UHC's $24 billion profit last year. And you're paying it literally out of your pocket. One of the challenge questions I've asked therapists, owners to do is like, do you have a kid? And I remember one specific conversation was kind of that thing. Like, I think it was $17 in his case. Like, you're losing $17 a visit every time you see people with this contract. Go home and, you know, he said, yeah, I have an 11-year-old daughter. I'm like, go explain that to her and ask her if that's okay. I'm taking 17 bucks from you, sweetheart. And I'm paying these people, you know, for these people I don't know. Is that cool with you? Right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now he's credit. He did it. I feel like my daughter would murder me, but. For his credit, he did. He did. He called me the next day. He's like, yeah, I asked my daughter. And I'm like, what'd she say? She's like, why would you do that? (laughs) That's right. Yeah, she didn't need an MBA for that. She knew it was bad. (laughs) Why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense, daddy. And then he's sitting there kind of going, yeah, maybe not. But Paul, you said before, like, we don't come from this industry. That comes out of the hospitals and that kind of discussion where they're literally mandated by law to see people and bring, you know, to see the Medicaids and Medicals and whatever. They have to do that. So that's where that whole payer mix parlance comes from. And then we go out there and don't know better and do this until we kind of figure it out and realize, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. But yeah, and from our perspective, And I just say this just to throw it out there and see where this goes. Like, I'm an optimist. I mean, I just, I'm an optimist to a fault. Somebody could punch me in the mouth and I'd be like, oh, you must have tripped over that strong breeze or something. I don't know. (laughs) So, and so to that extent, like one of the pieces of our own strategy that we agreed to as a team, as a company um, a while ago was that we would show and not tell. In other words, most people are smart. And to your example right there, most people are also rational. Even if they forget, when you put them in a position like you just did, hey, go ask your daughter about this analogy, that light bulb. Most people are smart and most people recognize that light bulb when it hits. Once you get beyond that, one of the challenges is is knowing what everybody else is getting paid. And so from our perspective, like one of the things I thought think a lot about is, is what else can we release just for free? Like I really believe, and this is maybe Silicon Valley talking in me, but I really believe information should be free. At least from our perspective, like we should give away the aggregate data. Like we've started publishing real-time metrics. Like you mentioned UHC, like let's just throw them under the bus because they can't defend themselves here. You can go onto the website and you can see what the average payments are that they're sending to our clients across the country, state by state. And you can go even one step further and look at the actual CPT code combinations. And I'm not saying that to kind of like make us look good. All I'm saying is, is that When we think about our content efforts, if you were to just scroll through our own content efforts, we don't really advertise. We don't talk about what we do that often. What our primary goal is to shine a spotlight on smart people like you doing interesting things for the industry. And then secondarily, maybe encouraging smart people like you in the industry to kind of take these ideas and maybe like roll them up into with your own like color and throw them out there for the world too. Because I think, and this is, I genuinely mean this as a compliment, I haven't yet met very many people that are not only talking about KPIs and metrics at all, unfortunately, but I also haven't met very many people then going one step further to say, here's a pro forma or here's a basic model. or And if that even speaks to you, I think it'd be really cool because I think you would agree with me. Like, I don't know you that well, but I think I know you well enough to know that you're probably practical enough to know that your way doesn't have to be everybody's way. 
but everybody should agree that KPIs are kind of universally applicable. <laughs> Again, I, I think they're misunderstood, right? I think when we start looking at data and metrics that there are people who kind of react to that. Number one, there's they're averse to tools and technology sometimes. They're averse to math sometimes. They don't know what the KPIs mean. So then that's another thing, right? You mentioned optimism and smart. Business owners, entrepreneurs are inherently optimistic, right? I mean, we believe something is going to work. We see a vision that doesn't of something that doesn't exist yet and we you know go running after it as if it's real and build it make it along the way the smart part that's actually in a lot of ways i think a handicap though because the people are smart right we had to to get into pt school you had to have a 40 basically you know or very nearly and you had to be a really good student and then you're supposed to be a really good student through pt school i used to drive my classmates absolutely nuts because I, by the way, it took me forever. And here's another little background. I went to five colleges, okay? I had a national merit scholarship and then I ended up losing my scholarship and going to different schools and whatever. It wasn't until grad school that I actually figured out how to study, right? And that what worked for me. So I would show up and they'd be like, are you ready for the test? I'm like, what test? Right? I'd get a B, B plus on the test. And they would, <laughs> would go nuts. And I'm like, well, I just feel like, what did you do? You didn't study. I'm like, I studied every day. I kept up. I thought about it. But my goal wasn't to get an A. I'm like, we're already in grad school. We're already here. My goal is to get a license. My goal is really to learn what I need to learn so I can best serve my patients. I was already thinking about patients and what I'm doing with them. So if I got a, a B plus and knew the relevant material that was going to benefit the patient, I didn't care what the letter grade was which went completely, and I guess failing out of school and taking eight years to get a bachelor's degree and all that stuff helped me in different ways, but completely foreign to most therapists, right? Most therapists today, right? If you come out with a doctorate degree, they've spent 20 years in school, literally 20 years. You count from kindergarten to finishing the doctorate. And the last time they were allowed to collaborate in school was in kindergarten. Their grades are predicated on being right and doing it by yourself. What do you call collaboration in school? Group project. Yeah, no, 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 because one person ends up doing most of it anyway. So what do you call collaboration? If you collaborate on an exam, what's that called? Oh, cheating. Yeah, cheating. Yeah, you're like literally punished for the one... Ah, uh, interesting. Yeah. ...and quality that's going to determine your success through the rest of your life. And I don't mean the rest of your life from that point forward. I mean the rest of your life outside of school, relationships, team sports, jobs, you name it. And we're taught to not do that. We get punished. For That's interesting. I've never heard it explained that way, but that makes sense. Totally makes sense. Well, and it's totally counterproductive, like completely and utterly. Again, the moment you graduate, even in your clinical role and job, the better you collaborate, the better you work together, the more questions you ask, the more you cheat the better off you're going to be and the better off your patients are going to be. I promise, by the way, we won't edit that and make you look or sound bad with just that little clip. <laughs> but it's an interesting way to think about it. I will die on that hill for sure. I think <laughs> I... <laughs> That's super interesting. I hope you don't mind me asking like, um, okay, so let me just preface this so that you know I'm not being a horrible person here, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. So let me preface it by saying, on a personal note, I've been investing in tech startups 
for all over 15 years now. And it's always unpopular to say this out loud, but you know, after you do it long enough, you start to develop heuristics and patterns in your head where you're like, okay, here's a red flag when I hear it, or here's a red flag when I see it, that sort of thing. So in my mind, one of the questions I'll often ask a founder early on is, is okay, what are the three or four metrics for you that matter? I mean, there's a million metrics that matter, but just in this moment while we're chatting, what are the three or four that matter? And before, you know, the police come after me, you know, this is really just a question to then generate the next part of the conversation. But in my mind, I have an idea of like what I want to hear them say. And I'll share my answer with you if you want from a tech startup world. But I'm curious, like when you think about somebody either joining your coaching program or you, you know, somebody calls you for help and stuff, are there two, three or five key metrics that you might want to suss out in the first call to give you a general sense of the health of that practice? Let's go back to your first premise, what you said about feeling bad about pattern recognition. There's nothing wrong with that in my head at all. Oh, thank you. Lori <laughs> Hack did a talk at CSM in Tampa. Y'all can look up whenever that was, but probably 20 years ago. And what they were looking at at Temple University, that's where my wife went to school, but they were looking at the qualities and framework for master clinician. What does master clinician mean? And what they figured was it kind of followed the 10,000 hour rule in that they didn't find anybody who really met the criteria for master clinician under five years of practice. They were five years or more, which if you think about 2,000 hours a year or five years, it kind of, it was a nice parallel, whatever. But five years or more, and therapists can relate to this, right? Because almost everybody who's a practice owner, almost, I started really early. I started three years out. But almost everybody's five years or more. And on the clinical side, you see patterns. I mean, the therapists recognize those right away. They see them, the person saying this, they walk this way, they you know, came in with, it's their knee. They already know with 90% certainty what the diagnosis is, what the real problem, the root cause is. And they're going to use their subjective exam and objective exam to verify and validate. So that's where I like your questions too, right? What I've learned is it's the same thing on the hiring side. It's the same thing on the management side. When managing people, it was wild, right? After 20 years of running a business, somebody would come in and they would resign. And I'm like, okay, and I'd be totally cool with it. And they're like, are you okay? Are you not surprised? I'm like, dude, I know you're going to quit for three months, right? <laughs> and they're like, what? They think they're unique. They think they're different. They're doing the same behavioral patterns that you see over and over and over again. It's the same thing with hiring. It's the same thing with investing and you know vetting founders and stuff. I mean, no, I think that's actually a really good indication of mastery. The answer to your question more directly is it's all over the place. I want to know what their cost per visit is. I want to know what their revenue per visit is. I want to know what their, how many FTEs they have. So let's go through a couple metrics because I've got seven written down here that I think are super important. And I would be shocked if more than 5% of the people listening to this actually track all seven. Okay. I can't wait. This is good. This is gold. <laughs> so everybody knows their new patient number. Very often they know their visit numbers. Those are generally fairly easy to get from the EMR or whatever, right? And people look at that. Units, units build is important. And I'm giving you like the raw number because from that I can figure out units per visit, right? I can figure out visits per case, meaning like my visits per evaluation. So I can, I know how many visits people are coming for on average for my practice. And then with those numbers, I can compare different therapists in different clinics, whatever different populations, diagnoses, what have you. 
FTEs. I want clinical FTEs, PT, PTAs, whatever. I want to know full-time equivalent. And that's a metric, by the way, that a lot of therapists don't, a lot of owners don't know. But that dictates your capacity. And by the way, that's another one they don't know. So if I know that I have 4.2 FTEs, I've got six headcount, but this one's part-time and this one's part-time. And and this, by the way, 40 hours is an FTE, 30 hours is 0.75, 20 hours is 0.5, right? These are not difficult things to do once you know them, but again, they come into it not knowing. So how do they figure that out? And when I ask, they they're very often get confused and we just go through a quick explanation and then, oh, they total it up. And yeah, I've got, I've got 4.2, I've got 8.3, whatever. Generally, by the time they get to 8, 10, beyond, they kind of know this stuff, right? Because they would have gotten how much along the way if they didn't. But a lot of times, especially in the lower end, they don't know the capacity, they have an idea, or their productivity standard, and I'm doing air quotes for your listening, is how many visits, they do visits per week or something. And I want to know visits per month, even after you factored in PTO and holidays and everything. I want to know what the average visits per month are. I want to aggregate that over like a four-month period. I want to know that they're hitting whatever that number is. And I want to compare therapists. I want to see what's actually doable and reasonable. But from that, right, and by the way, new patients, visits, units, FTEs, income, expense, which should be obvious. However, again, if you're not trained in business, what do you, there's a whole lot of people doing bank, bank balance accounting, right? If I got money in the bank, everything's good. But you need to, if you know your expenses, then you can look at your number of visits and you can figure out your cost per visit. And then you can look at that contract and decide whether it makes sense or not. And I've gotten, I've built the reputation of being out of network and hating insurance or whatever. I think that's not the case. I simply want to be paid fairly. I want you to be paid fairly. So if your cost per visit's 88 bucks and somebody comes to you with a $120 visit contract, I would sign that right? Why would you not do that? But if they come to you with a $67 contract, why would you do that? To me, it's not they're evil across the board. It's like, pay me fairly. Pay me fairly with a reasonable margin. And yes, we're happy to do that. And we did. When we started out, we were in network with virtually everybody and we transitioned out as payment went down. When somebody came in and like, well, we're not going to pay you 130 bucks a visit anymore. We're going to pay you 97. We're like, well, no, that doesn't cover our margin. Our cost is more or in San Francisco, high rent, whatever. But it's like, you know, it wasn't going to work. So anyway, that's the logical side of that. So I've left out one, right? I said there were seven. I've given you six so far. Yep. This is the one that nobody's tracking. Virtually nobody's tracking. The number of inbound leads. And this confuses everybody too, because they go, well, phone calls or anybody who's inquiring about your service. That is a lead whether they message you on Facebook or whether they get a fax referral or whether they pick up the phone and call you, that's a lead. And we want to know the lead because I want to compare that to the new patient number. And I want to look at my conversion rate. And if we go back for a second, we said, you know, you don't manage the metrics and even managing by the metrics, the metrics are a feedback loop. And this is a point I really, really want to make. Most of the metrics are a lagging indicator. And again, a lot of folks without the business background don't know what that means. It means it tells you what happened in the past. It's like driving down the street, looking in your rearview mirror, but it tells you how well you did something. Okay. But did. So you use those to forecast and think about going forward. What can you do to make corrections? And if you know, by the way, if you have an established conversion rate, you know, and you know what your revenue per visit is and those kinds of things, 
then you can turn some of those metrics into leading indicators for other things. So my lead generation is a lagging indicator for my marketing, my marketing activities. And I like to call it marketing activities because it's stuff people do, right? It's not just marketing this black box that somebody's going to do for me. I want to know specifically what's happening to generate those leads. My conversion rate, if I know what my conversion rate is, I have a repeatable process, by the way. Repeatable process means that it's written down, documented, and your players, your people can do it, right? So I know what my leads are. I have a repeatable process. If I know my, what my leads are, I can predict what my new patient number is. If I know what my visits per case number is, I can predict what my visits are going to be over the next 30 days. If I know what my revenue per visit is, I can predict my income over the next 30 to 60 days. So I can start being predictive using the metrics, and I can also you know, then make adjustments. It's a feedback loop. Right. If I tried a new marketing activity or paid somebody to do something and my lead number doesn't change or my leads go up, but my conversion rate plummets and I'm not getting any new patients out of it because they're bad leads, those are things I can use in my management decision making. Right. And see, it's, this is like refreshingly simple. It's simple, not necessarily easy. Super basic question for you, but just for anybody listening, how do you track that? Just like a Google spreadsheet or what, you know, when you're giving somebody advice, how do they? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So it depends on the systems that you have, it, uh, meaning like your technology and whatever, and it depends on your processes. So it goes back, we said you can't manage metrics, right? But there are two things you can manage. And this is where I'm also on a huge campaign to get people to stop managing like managers, because most of us have had, at least I did, really bad managers right, all along the way. And the irony is I can think of somebody who stood out as like an amazing, a really, really good manager. And to this day, I still don't really know what he did. But because the good ones, they make it look effortless and they look like they're not working. And when you put that person as, in as a role model, I don't know what to do. So I get really stuck. So what I talk to people about is think about the best coach you ever had, because the best coach you ever had or your kids ever had, whatever, they held people accountable, they demanded a lot, but they also believed in you and they helped their players be the best players they could be. And if you think about what a coach can do, a coach, I mean, Bill Walsh wrote a book on this, the score takes care of itself. Well, it doesn't really take care of itself. It's a result of how well you coached, how well you managed the players and the plays. And those are the things you manage, your plays, you know, your, your processes and the people who operate them. So that's where you said, how do you track that? If you have a clear process that captures everybody who calls, and you know, we used to create cases in the EMR, and we ordered our process so that we could do that. And we created a process that was patient-centric, like truly patient-centric. There are a ton of people who say they're patient-centric, and then they run all their processes on what's most efficient for them and mo most convenient for their staff. That's not patient-centric. We would literally do things that were less convenient for us because it was a better experience for the patient. And it would explain that to new employees and staff and they kind of go, oh, okay. If it worked better for them, we would make that decision on purpose to do it that way. And doing it that way, we could capture all the incoming leads. With the end of the month, I just printed a report. How many new cases were created? 183. How many new patients? 120. 120 divided by 183 is whatever, 60% or whatever, 65, right? Okay, that's our conversion rate. And that might be a good conversion rate for an in-network practice, but we were at that point in time virtually out of network with everybody, almost everybody. So there were a lot of patients who went other places, right? But then we also created processes to follow up and call those people, make sure they got taken care of, you know, recapture some of those 
folks because, you know, our service was better. Our attention was better. But you have to do that. All of those things have to be done deliberately. They're not going to happen by chance. Yep. By the way, I appreciate you being so transparent about this. So, so thank you, by the way. And this may be more of an opinion question. I'm curious, like, so... I don't have any opinions. <laughs> well, that's fair. That's fair. You got data. I like that. And again, I'm I'm hesitating because of what I said earlier. Like, I, you know, I don't want anybody to ever feel like they should, you know, I don't want to make anybody feel bad, right? But at the same time, like, you're in a position where you've seen a lot of these practices and you, you see these like commonalities and stuff like that. Like, what you're talking about makes complete sense. Metrics, I mean, even like the way you described it, honestly, is like the way we look at it too, even just in our own efforts internally. Like, whatever the metric is, so we use Google Spreadsheets, for example, Thomas and I, look at our metrics every Thursday. But at the same time, like those metrics are the result of something. They're kind of like the symptom. But if they go down or up, the problem is somewhere upstream, you know? So very similar to the way you think about stuff. But this is one of those topics it's really hard to convince other people of. You know, it's wild. I've had lots of clients of ours, for example, call us up and say, hey, Thomas, or hey, Paul, like, we love what you're doing on this, you know, let's just call it the marketing game. Can you tell us how you do it? And then we'll sit there, we'll spend an hour or two, show them our process. We like give it away. Like, hey, here's how we look at it. And then the vast majority of them do nothing with it. And it's like good intentions, but honestly, it gets a little bit old. I'd be lying if I didn't say like, sometimes I find myself thinking like, gosh, I wish I had known they weren't going to do anything. I would have saved myself an hour. <laughs> but do people have to get to rock bottom before they buy into this message, you think? In your experience, like what makes people actually finally say, I probably should like get serious about the math behind the business. Like, what is that trigger you think in your in your experience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's rock bottom necessarily, although people buy based on the pain. So there are two points I want to make here. One is this that they something's going wrong is when they reach out to me, right? Or they something went terribly wrong and they kind of survived it and they're like, oh, I don't want that to happen again. That's when they reach out and they they go and get a coach or work with somebody. But that's the other side of it. Like, when you say give it away, I'm like, yeah, you know, I got that advice from a mentor a long time ago. I, he was really pushing me to write a book. And I'm like, well, what do I put in the book? You know, I don't want to give it all away. He's like, no, no, put everything in the book. And I'm like, what? This is a guy who'd written a dozen, 15 books or whatever, and was doing very, very well, doing, doing quite well himself, right? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I put everything in the book. It's like the do-it-yourselfers are going to read the book, and they're, they're not going to hire you anyway. They're never going to hire you. They're going to go try it themselves. And, you know, they may not get a great result, whatever, but they're going to go do it. He's like, the other folks are not going to read the book. They'll read the first chapter. They'll realize that you're legit. And then they'll call you to hire you. And I'm like, well, okay. But to me, that didn't, none of that made any sense. Right. But it's proven out to be very, very, very true. And this is where the whole coaching thing comes in. And if you think about it from like your audience, they're therapists. Can people work out on their own? We think about the home exercise compliance and what people do even once they're taught and all. It's why you have multiple visits a week and repetition because there's an accountability component. There's an advancement. There's a, you know, you're painting a path, painting a picture for them of progress and progression. It's the same thing. If you want to go try to figure it out all yourself, we're in, a, in an age where there's no shortage of information. How do you apply it though and implement it? So that's back to that simple but not easy. I mean, golf is simple. Use this stick, put this ball in that hole. Super simple. The execution implementation is not simple. That's where things get really interesting. And business in general, if you spend a little time kind of stepping back and really studying 
the numbers, the metrics, and all. It makes a lot of sense. It's why the online games, it's why every business game on, on these, right, is super easy and profitable and you make a ton of money and it just, it's like, it's effortless. Well, there are no people, particularly in a services business, but really in anything, I mean, even in tech, whatever. It's the people that make everything messy. And again, we're back to full circle, the collaboration. You've got to be able to work together with people. You've got to be able to read the signs. You've got to be able to ask and support and help. If you're going into it as an enforcer, as a traffic cop, you're not going to have a healthy culture. You're not going to be employing people that you like showing up to work with every week. You're not happy. If you go in thinking, how do I serve these people? How do I help this player be the best player they can be? And by the way, pick people who want to be the best player in that position. Life gets exponentially easier, but nobody's doing it. Man, that right there, I feel like I could riff on that topic for an entire separate episode, just because like, yes, well, I don't want to speak poorly. Uh, let me just pause there. because I, <laughs> I started a whole other business to do just that, right? <laughs> to find the right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll just put a little teaser out there. You know, more often than not, we get questions from people about, hey, how do I start up? And that's not something we do at Strata, but inevitably people will ask us like how to start their practice and stuff like that. And man, if I had a nickel for every time somebody like wants to start, but never actually ends up doing anything, first of all, I'd never actually have to work ever again. But secondly, there's just a bunch of naive mistakes people make. You know, for example, I had one person who seemed really smart. I mean, they were just, they had recently graduated. And the first thing they said in their email was like, hey, can we chat? And I, you know, I, I try to like clear off 15, 20 minutes every week just to kind of meet new people like that. I think that's a holdover from my like Silicon Valley days, right? You just always embrace serendipity a little bit. <laughs> this person meant, so, I mean, I know she meant really well, but she was a new graduate, you know, and all that. She goes, well, first off, I went ahead and emailed you an NDA. Please go ahead and sign that before I can talk to you about my practice. Dude, <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> oh God, I'm forgetting his name. I was in EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, for a decade or so. And I think I'm going to forget his name. I think it was Sandeep. I can't remember his last name. Anyway, he came in and did a breakfast talk for us. We had this kind of lunch and learn-ish type thing, but it was a breakfast series, gather around the guru. And it was supposed to be basic tactical stuff that you could actually take back to your business that day and do, right? He passed out his NDA. It was a box at the top of the sheet because he had other stuff, right? They had an equation like what your idea is worth. Your idea is worth a dollar. Your idea with, and when, like your million dollar idea is not worth a million dollars until you do like these five other things, right? Cindy read something to the effect of, I promise not to tell anybody about your idea except my wife or my friends if it's really funny. And it went on to be like, and I'm not going to, you don't have to worry about me doing anything with it because you're not doing it anyway. And... <laughs> <laughs> that's savage i love it i still remember like reading that just laughing and being like we've all got these great ideas nobody's taking your idea it's hard it's hard to do and by the way if you're opening a pt practice you're not doing anything revolutionarily new most likely i talked to practice owners about pt being like baseball owning a practice is like baseball it's an execution sport there's not a lot of opportunities to outwit, outmaneuver, trick, deceive, whatever, you know, it's not soccer or hockey or, or whatever. It's not fluid. It's discrete activities over and over how well you hit the ball, how well, you know, maybe the only pitch, whatever, but everybody else is like, they know their situational plays and they, how well they do it determines their success. 
So, right. It's almost offensive to say that out loud, by the way, right? If I say to somebody like, your practice is kind of a commodity. Here's the cynical take on it, just as a as a commentary thing. And let's see if you you want to kill me for this. But, you know, I think like for me as an average patient, for example, I like to run marathons, right? And so inevitably something's going to happen at some point. And for me as a patient, and I live in Virginia, so, you know, direct access and all that stuff. So I'm going to Google PT near me. There's going to be 20 of them that pop up within a 10 to 20 minute driving radius from my home here in Northern Virginia. And I'm going to kind of just, I'm not choosing based on like where they went to school or how many PTs they have. It's inevitably like for me as an average guy, it's going to be how many Google reviews do you have and when's your next availability? At least for that first interaction. Well, see, this is another potential opportunity for the practice owners is to focus and niche down on your target customer. Bingo. Yes. If you found 20 practices, but one of them specialized in runners and running athletes, I promise you it's going to be one of the first three you call. Bingo. And that's exactly where I was going to go. I mean, you nailed it. It's like when we talk about starting a practice and all this stuff, it's like, all that's important, but that's kind of like table stakes, like getting credentialed if you're going to do, you know, accept insurance, getting a location, like all that stuff's important, but it's table stakes. The real differentiator comes down to execution, as you said. Totally. And all that stuff's relatively straight. I mean, it's the information's out there. People asking, well, how do I start a practice? Well, I mean, granted, this was 98 or something, but I got a cell phone, went to the mall and got business cards printed at the kiosk, <laughs> bought a massage table and signed an agreement with a local gym. I mean, that's, and then I went out to the doctors I knew and said, hey, I'm seeing patients here. Send them over, call me. That's how you start a practice. Yeah, is there credentialing and is there paperwork with the city? and ca- Yeah, but every other business here has done that. I mean, you don't need me for that. Go to the city and county and ask them, how do I open a business, right? How do I file for an FEIN? How do I get an attorney or somebody to do that stuff for you? But you know, starting the business is simple. You know, it's the details around, there are things to know around lease negotiation. There are things to know around hiring. There are things, right? But that's, again, why you want a coach ongoing in your corner. I think about that, and it's like the best athletes in the world have coaches. But the role changes depending on the level of the athlete. And that's the other thing, like coach for a business will be different at different stages. And if you're still with the same coach at 10 employees that you were when you started up, it might be time to shift. It might also be time for your CPA or for your attorney or other stuff too, because people specialize in different areas and have seen different things. Thanks for listening to another episode of Strata Stories. Strata is a single EMR platform and revenue cycle management service for physical, occupational, and speech therapy practices that helps you achieve a 99.99% reimbursement rate. If you'd like to learn more about Strata and see how our EMR and RCM works, head over to stratapt.com to book a demo.